Uh, Acts 21 is the text we're in, and I have 30 minutes, so we probably will go at least 40 into our donut hour. <coughs> 40 minutes into the donut hour. So uh, Acts 21 verses 1 through 3 is where we're at. Uh, Paul is just continuing his way back to Jerusalem, trying to get back there uh, for a feast. And uh, we'll have a map up there as we read through some of these um, locations. Uh, there's a little bit of the feel of, you know, reading a travel itinerary as you read chapter 21. And uh, it was a bit of a struggle in studying to just kind of know, you know, how, how to teach this um, without just getting into a bunch of information. And so, uh, but there's some wonderful nuggets in the midst of it all as well. So we have uh, verse one here and we're going to go through verse 14 today. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from there and, and set from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And so Luke does a great job (laughs) recording the sailing account. He uses great nautical detail. You can just picture Paul leaning on the ship and watching these uh, land masses go by that have great uh, significance in the mission field, especially as he goes there in the purple island there of Cyprus, where at the beginning of his first missionary journey, there was quite the incredible drama and the power of God unfolding as even the governor uh, of the island would get saved. Um, and so we know from history and from the epistles that they are carrying on this ship a giant financial offering from the not-Jews, from the Gentiles. Uh, th- this offering, this money could be helpful in supporting their their roots of faith that are going through a famine over there in Judea, in uh, Jerusalem. And so it's quite the offering. They have many men going along with the, with the money uh, as accountability and as protection. And they're going to be uh, given this gift uh, once they finally do get back home. It says in verse 4, Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit, uh, not to go up to Jerusalem. So perhaps Sergius Paulus was one of these disciples. And uh, some of my notes just speak of how hard it would have been in the day to find disciples. You know, you don't have the app on your phone of, you know, look on the map app of where a local church is or something, uh, you know, or have Siri tell you to take a left and get to a, a body of Christians. Uh, but um, we know that the Lord often does lead Christians to Christians when they're in those isolated environments. We've even found that in Nepal, in our trekking and in, in non-reached places, uh, finding Christians as they're out just discipling people and being out uh, and about. But uh, one thing that you'll note as we read chapter 20 and chapter 21 is this realization of the necessity of Christian fellowship. There was some great and wonderful time spent with one another. And as you read the book of Acts, you see the Christian early church valued time spent together, close Christian fellowship. And and so how hard it might have been to find disciples, how hard it might have been to find disciples that would invite you in for a week as Paul goes in there and spends a week with these Christians. And just an encouragement from 1 John 7 tells us that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so part of the gospel is that God has saved us into a family and friendships with one another, friends that stick closer than brothers, as Jesus tells us. And, and sometimes you have to just speak encouragement, exhortation, and warning to one another. And that's what they did. It's just a quick you know, mentioning of this group of Christians that he stayed with for seven days. But what did they do there? They told Paul through the spirit, and you might just put a dot next to that through the spirit, because that's going to come in later on in our, in our, I I guess it'll be a discussion, you know, except you're going to be quiet. It's what you're going to do. No, I'm joking. Uh, (coughs) I tease, Uh, but they spoke (coughs) and it says through the spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. And this is something that we're going to see multiple times in this chapter. It's something that we saw in the last chapter that the spirit would warn of the hardships that Paul would face in, in Jerusalem and that the disciples that the Holy Spirit would speak through prophesying, they would warn Paul not to go, okay, not to go up. And if you just go back a chapter, Acts twenty twenty two, Paul says, see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So in every city that he was traveling through, the Lord was communicating to him, it's going to be rough. Kind of the remainder of your missionary life is going to be rough. And so in verse 5, when we'd all come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. So just this sweet, touching farewell scene. There's a solemnity to the scene that emphasizes by the fact that they knew they'd never see Paul again. The next verse says, When we'd taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And so it was definitely one of those bitter goodbyes as they probably sat on the shore, watched him get on, watched the sail, the ship sail off into the the horizon. And then they turned and they went home knowing that they wouldn't see his face anymore. Uh, Verse seven says, and when we'd finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to uh, the P is probably silent, but what do I know? Patol, Patui, um, Patolamace. The S is probably silent too. I don't know, guys. Lakeview High School graduate. That's the diploma. That's the diploma I have hanging on my wall. So you get what you pay for. That's all I have to say. Uh, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And so again, friendships, fellowships, greeting kneeling, embracing, falling on neck and kissing. These are all the verbs that we see of these fellowships and friendships and mentorships that Paul has with these folks. Um, And and so this is an interesting group of people, though. Uh, We don't know where these disciples came from. We don't read about them starting on one of Paul's missionary journeys. Perhaps Philip that we'll read of later today, perhaps he helped start this church there. But in verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed. So it's kind of cool to see Luke just write of himself in the narrative here. Uh, We departed and 
came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. And so we see there on the bottom right of the map uh, near the sea, you have Caesarea Martima, Maritima, the Caesarea that's by the sea is what it's called. Caesarea is a very special place to those of us that go on the Israel trip. And uh, I know we already have in our heart to do another Israel trip in the near future. If you missed the first one or you want to go on again, uh, just have that in mind. Start budgeting for that. But Caesarea, you guys, is one of the spots on the trip that we just love to go. Beautiful. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful spots of the whole trip there in the Mediterranean coastline. Uh, but there's, a, there's original architecture that's there uh, that has been dug up over the last 50 years that are the very places that Paul would stand on trial that we'll read about later on in the book of Acts. Uh, and it's there in Caesarea that Cornel, uh, Cornelius became the first Gentile Christian as Peter went up there and shared the gospel with him and his family. Uh, Caesarea, it's here that Philip would settle down with his life. About 20 years previously, Philip the evangelist, we read about him here in verse 8. Uh, he was one of the original seven deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6. These deacons chosen to help facilitate the ministry. God rose up seven men to serve, especially serve tables. But we see the practices that they would help with the practical parts of the church so that the elders can help give themselves to um, the ministry of the word and to prayer. And, uh, and so when you read the list in Acts chapter 6, Philip is one of seven guys. Another famous guy was Stephen you're familiar with. And these were guys in Acts 6, 3 that uh, they were seven men of good reputation. They were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So there's just three little qualities of these deacons. Uh, men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. You can just be praying for your leadership as uh, over the next couple months, we're just praying and having discussions about what that deacon ministry looks like in our church. And, you know, uh, 14 years this year I've been here and just kind of continued on what maybe was inherited in the church and the way that the deacon stuff was just kind of behind the scenes. And, and we're just praying about more of that. What does that look like to recognize and, and whatnot? And just you can just be praying for our leadership as we look to the deacon role in our church. We have a very strong elder presence and just desire to be biblical in our deacon ministry as well, um, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And one thing we know about these men, one thing we know about Philip is that these were guys that were faithful in the days of small things. They, they are people that are okay serving in obscurity, being faithful behind the scenes, not in the spotlight. You know, oftentimes these are the guys that are cleaning the toilets, stacking the chairs, vacuuming the carpet, getting gum out, you know, from underneath the table, whatever, you know, they're happy to do all those practical things. And it, and it goes so far beyond that. If you've ever been a part of the building project in our church, if you, there's so, you know, the financial part of our church, all of that wonderful ways that these um, men serve. And, uh, and one thing we see in that Paul tells Timothy in the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 3.13, he says, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, I think that the Bible says it, 
and experience confirms it that when when people are faithful to serve in that role or that office of just faithfully serving the people of God in practical matters. There's something about the vacuuming, the sweeping, the polishing, the nailing, the hammering, the the wiring, all of those things that you're doing it and you're here and you're stacking the chairs and you begin to think of the people that sit in those chairs and you begin to pray for those people and you're mowing the lawn and you begin to pray for the people that are walking up and down the sidewalk by our church and you're, you know, you're shoveling the snow and you pray for, you walk across the street, you shovel the snow of the guy across, you know, and pretty soon your role becomes something that is very not myopic, but is very broad and wide for the whole world. You begin serving Jesus. This doesn't just apply for the office of deacon. This is anyone who you start serving, you're going to see great joy as you become about other people knowing the Jesus that you know. Those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves great boldness. And so I want to encourage you, you want to start being an evangelist? Start serving the Lord. And that'll bring a great thrust to your evangelism. We see evangelism as a gift of the Holy Spirit as well. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you just desire to tell people about Jesus, but there's just something kind of blocking. I would encourage you to ask the Lord for the spiritual gift of evangelist. Now, something wonderful about the word evangelist uh, in the Greek, it's E-V, the V looks like a U, U, Euangelion, U. Okay, it's part of your vocal warm-ups. If, if I've taught you any vocal, okay, euangelion, okay, and it means the good news from the battlefield. That's where that word comes from. I love it. Being a military historian myself, I just love studying. I don't know that I should claim that. I like watching war movies, but um, <clears throat> you know, and you know, though the scenes in the movies or in the books where you know the battle was raging and it was this big fight that everything hung on it and then the good guys get the victory and there's the runner that runs back to the back right and he's on a horse you know or he's in the motorcycle or whatever and he goes back to the back and he tells everybody that we won the battle and that great shout it just brings the triumph it's so much joy in the people that are waiting to hear it and that is uh that is the story of jesus that we get to go and we get to tell that the battle's been won Do you know where the first gospel or the first evangelism is found in the Bible? It's called the Proto-Evangelion, right? The Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3, 15, where God tells the serpent and the woman and the man that through the woman, the seed will come and he will crush the serpent's head. And in the process, the serpent will bruise this hero's heel. And that's the first time we read of the rescue plan of God, the good news of forgiveness of sin, the dealing with the devil. And uh, and now we get to go out and we get to tell the world about it. All right. So Philip was a guy, started out, he was just a faithful guy that was content, you know, serving tables to some Greek Greek-speaking Hebrews that felt neglected at the daily food distribution. That's where it always starts, you guys. It's starting at the stuff that seems so mundane, but it's so important. And Jesus says, if you're faithful in the little things, he'll make you ruler over much. You know, my testimony is that 
when I started walking with the Lord, my youth pastor got a hold of me. He invited me into the circle of guys that would go and pray before youth group. Just praying over youth group. And I remember just being with people, didn't know much about praying in public, and I just started praying for help the kids that come that wear those cool van skating shoes, you know, help them to know how to get saved, you know. And I just started praying that the next meeting and the next meeting. And I remember when my youth pastor came up and said, Rory, I noticed you're getting very bold in prayer. And I was like, I am, I am getting bold in prayer. I'm a brave prayer, you know. And that started like a guy won't shut up during the prayer meeting. You guys are like, could you let some other people pray? I gave my Saturday night up for this, you know. Then I'll interrupt you, right? When you start getting in there, I get in there. It's because I'm bold in prayer. Sorry, you know. (laughs) Uh, But then from being bold in prayer, it went to, hey, can you take out, we rented buildings, our church did. We didn't have a home, so we'd rent different buildings for youth group, for all the different things. Hey, could you take out the garbage and wipe down the bathroom after youth group? Hey, could you stack the chairs or, or straighten the chairs after youth group? Could you vacuum? Pretty soon, I'm, pretty soon I'm vacuuming. I'm cleaning toilets. I'm wiping things down. I'm taking the garbage out. And as Daniel Fusco says, I became the first one there, the last one to leave, and I said yes to everything. And that's the testimony of these guys that stood up on the stage and even their wives. First ones here, last ones to go, say yes to everything. That's, those are the people that the Lord looks for. And, uh, and then when you're faithful in that, he makes you bold in evangelizing. And so uh, this Philip, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was described as someone that was bold with the Holy Spirit and telling people about Jesus. In, the, in two chapters, the two chapters following those first deacons, you have two of these deacons opening up their mouth and preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen, one of the first deacons, open up his mouth, telling people about Jesus. They couldn't refute the things that he said. He ends up dying for the name of Jesus one chapter after he becomes a deacon because he was so bold in telling people about Jesus. By chapter 8, you have another deacon, Philip, and he's going up into North Israel, into Samaria, and leading a revival among this group of what they would call half-breeds in the day, mixture with the former idol worship of the Assyrians and a little bit of the God of the Jews. And uh, people are getting saved up there. And so that same Philip who led that revival in uh, Samaria, then the Lord says, hey, I know you're up here where revivals happen and everyone's getting saved. I don't know if you've been following the Asbury revival on Twitter, on Facebook, what's going on, Kentucky or something like that, you know, but there's a revival going on over on the, in the Midwest, over on the East coast. And uh, you got to look it up. There's stuff going on. I'm not saying everybody is there is like totally legit, but there's men of God that are there. Like, I'm telling you, there's like thousands of people getting saved right now. We need to be praying for that. This is like the great awakening that we've been praying for, for our country, you guys. So if you're not praying about that, start praying about it. But imagine Philip being over at Asbury this week. And then the Lord says, Hey, hear me out. Going to need you to go to death Valley. (laughs) Why what's into, I'm going to need you to go to death Valley. And so he does, he's obedient to go out to the desert and there's the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. You guys know the story. Can't tell it all to you right now, but the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved and goes and leads to now, even to this day, there's a Christian, heavily Christian population in Ethiopia believed to have come from that. Okay. So, so we have this Philip, one of the first deacons, he's called the evangelist. He has this nickname about him and, uh, and you see great boldness in his life. You see great boldness in, uh, 
in Stephen's life, the other deacon who died, the first martyr. Now, I don't know if you've put the puzzle pieces together, but in Acts chapter 7, we read that it was Paul who gave the green light for Stephen to be killed for Jesus. Now, now Paul is a Christian church leader, an apostle, leading evangelist of the then known world. He's coming back and he's staying at probably one of the best friends house of the guy that he killed. Okay. And so here's what we just see what the healing work of Jesus does in the lives of Christians. We realize that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Paul said, and I'm the chief of those. And we would all know our own heart and say, oh, I think you've got a competitor right here, Paul, right? And so perhaps it's in this meeting that Philip revealed facts about himself and about Stephen and the first deacon ministry that Luke would write down and record and later put in to Acts chapter six through eight. This may be the meeting that happened where Luke got his material for writing uh, the book of Acts, this historical book. Now, verse nine, this man, now this man, we're talking about Philip the evangelist, had four virgin daughters who prophesied, or maybe your translation says four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And if you're a parent of any number of children, you hear this of Philip the evangelist and your heart just leaps a little, doesn't it? Four, you know, to have four children, uh, man, what a wonderful thing. And you begin to see them start following Jesus on their own. My son, Russell, 16 and he just loves Jesus. He's, he's fasting. He's praying on his own. He's at every meeting of the fast. He's leading worship. He started teaching the middle school ministry every other week. He leads worship for middle school and high school ministry. He goes out to Palina. He's on his second missionary trip to Nepal. He's going to Israel. And I just, as a dad, can't be any more pleased uh, with my oldest son, Russell. And, and what jo- uh, John tells us in 3 John 1, 4 says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children practice the truth. You know, and, and, and out of, I have five children at the moment, you know, and out of all my children, it is such a joy to watch Lainey, you know, just be asking and thinking about the things of the Lord and my little ones uh, just soft and tender to the things of the Lord. But I'll tell you this, you get that one oldest child following and serving Jesus and you start thinking your task is done. Guys, I haven't even started. I'm like, okay, let's get the read with me storybook Bible for toddlers out again. And it's time to get back down here and make the little silly noise. Well, you know, you got to have one of those in every Bible reading time with the kids, you know, because that'll keeps them engaged, you know. But um, uh, as, they're, as they're discipling, it's those times in the word with your kids that just builds that foundation in their life. And you just look at Philip the evangelist and four daughters, four daughters of character, of virtue, um, and, and of power and charisma. This dad just had to have had an overflowing heart. They were daughters who were pure. I mean, I remember I taught a whole Sunday once on you know, sexual purity within the church based on this verse. And uh, I I took a little ring in for it just because I don't know, that's what the the text and the purpose of the text is saying. And, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, um, it, it is a fun fact though, isn't it? This wonderful fact that maybe we don't hear too much of in 2023, that a family would have four daughters 
and and they're pure and they're chaste and they're waiting for their husbands and they're um, they're walking in character and virtue and behind closed doors they are just they're the same behind closed doors as they are and of course this goes to the young men as well right and uh, and then not only that but that they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're charismatic and they're walking in the gifts that God would have for them no doubt Philip had talks with his daughters and spoke to them about not partaking of the pleasures of the world and things that are going to compromise. And these are conversations we need to be having with our children. You need to be getting away with your kids and having those hard conversations with them about purity, about character, about integrity. You need to have the conversation that the comedian Damon Wayans has with his kids where he said, kissing leads to touching and touching leads to grandchildren. You know? And you just tell them, I'm not ready for grandchildren, right? Okay, I'm just teasing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not, it was uh, Marshall that said, it's not clear that Luke intends the readers to see a connection between virginity and prophetic powers. Although unmarried or widows women, widowed women sometimes had a special status in the church. And so not only were they pure, they were spiritual. They probably got it from their dad, right? If you know Philip, then you know it's not surprising that his kids would probably be charismatic as well. And what is the promise from Joel on the day of Pentecost that Peter quoted and referenced in Acts chapter 2? In those days, when I pour out my spirit, the young men will see visions and the young, uh, I think it's the old, old men will see visions. Well, that happens anyways, am I right? Uh, and the young men and women will prophesy, right? So we see that happening because of the day of Pentecost, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Guys, we're making really good time. I might make that half hour. The half hour of power, they call it. Uh, verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet came named Agabus, came down from Judea. And when he'd come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, said thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver them into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus was a known prophet. And back in chapter 11, you see Agabus prophesied that there would be a famine. And so that's when they determined to send that relief, that money and that help uh, there. Now he does something very prophetic in the Old Testament. Prophets would often use visual aids. They didn't have PowerPoint back in the day, you know? And so they would use things like, uh, I'm reading Second Kings right now, where you have a hija take a brand new garment, rip it into 12 pieces, and then give it to Jeroboam and say, thus God is splitting the tribes of Israel. And he gives uh, 10 of those tribes over to uh, Jeroboam. And then the uh, tribe of Judah, which also we know would include Benjamin, uh, would be for Solomon's generation. So, uh, so some would say that this wasn't, you know, your cowboy belt that you've got with the big shiny belt buckle. I disagree. I think there had to have been some sort of prize on the end of that leather strap. But, um, but that it was actually kind of a long girdle, that it was a girdle type belt. And if you've seen kind of the Bible stories or whatever, that they kind of wear that long robe with kind of a sash 
girdle type belt that they would be able to gird up their loins when they need to run or go into battle and that this thing was pretty long and so he would be able to connect it to his feet and up to his hands and use that prophetic picture of the one who owns this girdle will be uh, delivered up and be bound by the Jews in Jerusalem. And it says, Paul, uh, Luke makes it personal here in verse 12. When we heard these things, both we and those uh, from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So people who desperately loved Paul and didn't want to see him come to harm beg him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul was courageous and wasn't concerned if harm came to him. We read that in 20, chapter 20 already today. I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to suffer and die. And Paul's going to say here in verse 13, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Don't go breaking my heart. It was written by Paul the Apostle, just so you know. We'll sing that next week here. I couldn't if I tried. For I am ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we're just astounded with the commitment of Paul. Uh, Another Paul named Paul Bear Bryant, the famous champion Alabama coach, said, there is no substitution for guts. And Paul seems to have it here as the Holy Spirit makes us brave. He makes Paul brave. I'm ready to die if it means it. Winston Churchill said, this is no time for ease and comfort. It is the time to dare and endure. I think it's the same time these days. Uh, The the status of unreached people groups in this world, that half of the world's population is unreached with the gospel. That means that there's less than 2% of the population are disciples actively making discipled. And the half of that half, are unengaged, unreached, which means there is no current active evangelism happening in that people group. So there is still a task at hand, you guys. This is not the time for ease and comfort. This is not the time to be coward. And this is not the time when you hear that if you go to that country and share the gospel, you could be in prison. It's not the time to shirk away. It's the time to press in with boldness in the way of Paul. Uh, It says Paul could not be persuaded. When he could not be persuaded, verse 14, we ceased. Cease trying to get him to stop going. And they said, all right, well, the will of the Lord be done then. And that's the right heart. At the end of the day, the will of the Lord be done. Thomas Jefferson said, one man with courage is a majority. So here was Paul. Everybody, I don't know if you notice, everywhere he goes, people are telling him not to go to Jerusalem. He'll be put in prison. He's the odd man out. And he's a man with with courage. He's the majority, and so everyone couldn't persuade him. So they just stepped back and said, the will of the Lord be done. Now, there's something surprising in this chapter. Maybe you've noticed it. I kind of referenced it already. And it's that the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the prophecies and then the deductions from the prophecies almost seem to be in direct contradiction to each other. Right, Whether it's Paul and where he's sensing from the Holy Spirit or what the disciples and the prophets are sensing from the Holy Spirit. In 1921, uh, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So Paul had a purpose since chapter 19 in the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
he sensed the Lord's call was for him to go up to Jerusalem. And yet, in every city, Paul was hearing that he would find chains and tribulations, and people would warn him not to go. And so then you have, on the other hand, all of his friends, his traveling companions, his gifted brothers, prophets in the Lord are telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, even Luke chimes in and says, I also was telling him not to. But as I, Howard Marshall says, we got to come back to the foundation. And when you read Luke's writings, you realize that he was for Paul going to Jerusalem. He knew that that was the Lord. At the same time, there was this conflict. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. I mean, this is Paul the apostle. He's kind of a pillar. We can't lose this guy. We don't want to lose this guy. And then in Tyre, we read in verse 4 of our text today, we also read that it was through the Spirit that certain disciples urged him. Now, the imperfect uh, tense of that word says that again and again and again, they urged him not to go. So he was just getting constant pressure not to go to Jerusalem. You got to think about who's warning Paul right now. Luke, Silas, Timothy, the men from Macedonia, Philip the Evangelist, his four virgin daughters who prophesy, Agabus, a trusted prophet who prophesied that there would be a famine in the land. All of them are begging again and again, Paul not to go. So who's right? Was Paul wrong to go up to Jerusalem? Was Paul wrong to go up to Jerusalem? Was he quixotic or quixotic? which means foolishly impractical and impulsive? Was Paul in sin disobedient to the Holy Spirit? Did he get what he deserved and go to prison because he was disobedient? Was was he wrong to go? And I think that just because of the sake of time, my understanding and my reading, I'm going to just give you a couple final thoughts here as we wrap up. John Stott wrote, some of argued that the references to the Holy Spirit simply meant that the speakers were claiming inspiration without necessarily being inspired. But then we would have to interpret other references to the Spirit with the same ambiguousness. And I cheated there in my reading, ambiguity. (laughs) It goes on to say, the better solution is to draw a distinction between a prediction and and a prohibition, okay? Uh, Alistair Begg, you can tell he was reading Stott as I listened to him this week. He said, the predictions were correct, the prohibitions were not. Begg goes on to say, Peter's warning, wanting to protect Jesus was admirable, but it was wrong. Just like Paul's friends here, the strength of the people, the strength was people's concerns, Affirmation and deductions, even from God's word or prophecies, they can be fallible at times, even if 20 of us agree on it. We know the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict. Marshall said the prophetic word was a prediction, not a prohibition. The warning was divine. The deduction was human. So there may be a word that is from the Holy Spirit, and then there needs to be the prayer and the discernment on what, what's the application or the prescription to come from this? You got to give them all props though. Every single one of them was trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, weren't they? You read missionary biographies and you see that the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the very nature of God's unfolding drama 
is untidy at best. I don't know if you're a missionary biography reader. Start reading them. And you'll see that these are hard decisions. John Patton was told by his missionary board, you go to the New Hebrides Islands, you'll be eaten by cannibals. The, the team that went right before him was eaten alive in front of the ship that dropped him off while the rowboat was going back to the boat. Okay? But he knew, read, Stott's bi- uh, read Patton's biography, you guys. He knew God was calling him there. And today, at the end of his journal, he was able to write, New Hebrides won for Christ. And there's a strong presence on those islands today of Christianity. Or Jim Elliott, the pastors around him before he went down to South America told him, don't go, you're needed in the United States as a pastor. Gladys Allward, uh, she was a short, under five feet tall, straight, jet black hair uh, gal. And uh, at the time when the blonde hair, blue eyed missionary girls were seeing an impact in the world. And the board was saying, don't go. You're going to compromise the integrity of our mission board. She ended up going anyways to China. And when she got off of the boat, who did she find in China? But girls that looked just like her. And she had a huge impact on the Chinese uh, people. And so, uh, you know, it's that saying. I said it last week. The best of men are men at best. Uh, One final quote here. Oswald Sanders. We'll have the worship team come on up. Oswald Sanders tells the story of a young man beginning a career as a Coast Guardsman, and he went out into a storm to save a ship in distress. As the rescue vessel began to head into the storm, the young man shouted to the captain, we will never get back, to which the captain replied, we don't have to come back, but we do have to go. And you guys, as we close here today, that's, that's the encouragement to you. We go out of this place. There might as well be a sign above the door that says you are now entering the mission field. Be bold, be courageous, open up your mouth. As you do, you will catch the flack. You do have to go, regardless of coming back. Will you guys stand with me and we'll close? So, Lord, we trust you uh, with our life. Um, We know that your word makes it clear that it is possible to know the will of God. Someone might be sitting here then like, well, then how do you know what direction to go? Lord, we just know that you've given us so many tools to be able to discern the, just the promptings of our hearts and the people around us. We know that there are decisions that need to be made in this room and among these people that Lord, they would seek you with all their heart as your word says, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart and you are worth trusting in Lord, in the midst of the decisions and Lord, in the midst of the mission ahead of us, even our Nepal team, that there's families that are going, there's families that are leaving kids behind as they go And the world, we've heard so much flack from the world, how foolish it is that you go. But Lord, we're just obedient to that heavenly call. How shall they hear 
unless there's a preacher? And how shall there be a preacher unless they're sent? And then it's written, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good, good tidings of glad things. Thank you that in the midst of all of this, Lord, we can trust in you and rest in you. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday afternoon. Stick around for the next 30 minutes or so. Come into the fireside room. Have a donut and some coffee. Get to know some people. Come meet the elders, the new elders, their wives. They'll be in by the fireplace in the fireside room. God bless you guys. Have a great week.